Good evening, Oliver. Hello, we're getting hot. <laughs> Mr. Sherrington, good evening. Hello, hello. Hi, Tom. Hi. The, the, the boys are back in town. Oh, this really <laughs> is a powerhouse of educational minds, isn't it? <laughs> good. It's good to see Michael's in the back in his shed. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Great. You've both got a, a, like a proper you've den. Both got mod, you've both got modern art on your wall. I, I'd, have, I'd, have got, you know, I'd, have, uh, I'd have gone out and bought something if I'd have realised. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, you got you got to be contemporary, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. But it's it's great to get you both together. So thank you so much for for, for coming together. This is uh, this is exciting for us. No, but it's nice to be asked back. It means it wasn't too bad the first time. <laughs> no, no. More no. so, thanks for doing it on a Sunday because you've uh, managed to get me out of having to sit through dancing on ice with my wife and children. So I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're ready to get started. Right, okay. Season three, episode nine of More Than A Job podcast. My name is Mike Bradford. Hi, it's Jay Woolerton. And my name is Daniel Bull. Peace and clear now, baby. Yeah, yeah, because it begins like... Batman and Robin, Mario and Luigi, Wallace and Gromit, Holmes and Watson, Ant and Deck, Sherrington and Cavigliole, more than a pod. Oh God! And you, I thought I'd mess Oliver's name up, and I got that, and uh, I messed up the next bit. I just keep going. More than a job podcast in association with Research Ed has the absolute pleasure to welcome the greatest duo, partnership, and bromance in education. Tom Sherrington and Oliver Cavigliole. They need no introduction as their reputation precedes them, and it is our absolute pleasure to welcome them both to the podcast. For the first time as a duo, both of you, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for welcoming us. Yes, it's a pleasure to be back. It, it, well, it's a pleasure to have you both. We, we spoke to you actually before we interviewed you, Tom, and, and did the longer episode. We have spoken to both of you before at, at various research eds. What have you both been up to since we saw you at last at Research Ed Surrey? Well, uh, finishing um, volume number three of the walkthroughs, which is always a significant task. Like childbirth, you you quickly or a marathon, you forget what it was like that enables you to consider doing it again. Yeah. So anyway, anyway, things get smoother. We've been in training with, with that. I've done another couple of books. Um, that hasn't come out. Uh, the Extended Mind, the summary of a book that I collaborated with David Goodwin and Emma Turner. I designed and illustrated Paul Kirschner and Carl Hendricks' book, which comes out in June. And I did one for a couple of German guys in the. With a Swiss publisher, which was interesting. Amazing. So yeah, I, we're lucky that Oliver managed to find time to do our book. No, really. Yeah, I mean, we've we, we've just had this great process. I suppose it, it intensified between sort of November, December, January, really intensively to and froing on the book and getting volume three done. And then you kind of have a month of fiddling around with edits and stuff. So it's literally last week we signed it off, done and dusted, hundred percent finished. So that, is, it, that has been a preoccupation, but we sort of do it, well, I personally do all of it in the crap of the day, like in the evenings and the weekends, because in most of the days I'm in schools training and or online. So since Research Ed Surrey, I've done, been to lots of, I've been to lots of schools, um, lots of days where I go in and I help schools with, you know, their CPD, watch, watch lots of lessons, help them with, set up their CPD processes and more often they're, work, they're already schools signed up to walk through. So we're talking about how you use the toolkit. But that and and some online things. So it's been great. I mean, I've been all around the country doing that, and it's, it's been an exciting period, really. 
And um, Walkthroughs 3 is due for release on the 18th of April. So that's obviously very quickly coming up. How does Walkthroughs 3 complement Walkthroughs and Walkthroughs 2? Well, it's really an extension of the series. So it, it's like the, the when we did Volumes 1 and 2, we, we, we did a bit of a trawl round. We're looking at to complete the set. We're thinking, what, what must we put in? Is there only going to be this book? So we need to, we, we sort of had a look at what was missing from the first two that we hadn't covered at all, but we kept the same structure. So it's got exactly the same structure, some research background, the why section, some ideas about how you implement coaching and CPD in the how section, and then 50 or so strategies in the same series titles as before. But some of them were ones we'd already knew we were going to do. Like we got some stuff to do with reading and, and, and writing lots and we can talk more about the detail of it but there's quite a strong theme about assessment which was not in the first two books with in it that spans a few of the different series yeah i mean so it, it sort of we feel like it sort of completes the set if there are, we still think of other walkthroughs that you might do but we think well there's probably enough there and what we've decided to do is on our website is treat the all three volumes like it's one big kit rather than three separate things in the future people when they join us they'll see that it's just one set of tools rather than we'll sort of blur the boundaries between the three volumes because they're, they're really just three parts of a whole. One thing I want to say is that I think in education we are obsessed and addicted to hierarchies and programmes. So the best ones are in number one and then they kind of weaken to number two. You know, it's not a programme. Some Tom's had a few people say to him in his visits, oh, no, volume two is out, but I haven't finished volume one as if you're going to go through each one. So we've, we've been programmed to think of programs and hierarchies and one, two, three, but actually it's complete. And which ones are most important to a particular teacher or school depends on so many, so many factors. I don't know how people can claim that certain things are more important. I think, well, I know how they can do it because they haven't got experience of all sectors. So it, there's just the assumption theirs is the only sector. And so what they see is obvious. And, and you assume it's so for all sectors, all classes, all subjects. So it's not a we included a, few, we included a few more very deliberately, that which we knew would be for primary. So there are some, there are some things to do with, say, uh, play and um, portfolio-based assessment, sort of, <coughs> which, are, which are based on our experience talking to people working in early years and, and key stage one. And so that was kind of deliberate because some of the other ones, like, you know, some of these some of the other ones are very obviously very secondary orientated so you can i think that's that's the if, if there's a sort of rebalancing in some some ways i'd say now we've finished all three there's definitely a much stronger balance across all phases and maybe some people perceived before even though half the schools that subscribe to our materials are primary already it, it's just that dealing with some quite specific ends even in a primary school early years is special compared to year six. So, you know, if finding some more precise things for early years teachers to kind of connect with, we thought, thought was useful. And I think the other thing is, is we've, we've expanded the range of authors. I think you're gonna ask us about that later, but we've just got a lot more contributors because of the specialisms we were going into. We just thought we wanted to include certain ideas and because it had gone well in the second volume we thought well why don't we get those people to write them rather than us writing them and so this is this is the completion of the trilogy there'll be no more walkthroughs after this is that correct 
none, none of the same type. I mean, we might do ones, we, we were thinking at one point we might do one, uh, a kind of leadership focused one maybe, or we might, again, inviting lots of people to write that if we do that. And then we might do one for parents about supporting children at home. The kind of the basic techniques for teachers in the classroom, we think for the foreseeable future, this is more than enough. Uh, so for people to get their heads around. So, uh, and I think if we added, keep at, kept adding them, then you'd sort of diluting the, the power of it. Cause you, rather than it being a summary of things, you just got an endless line, line of them and, and it, you, it, it sort of lose its power slightly. And how does the writing process happen between the two of you? Well, essentially Tom writes and I illustrate. Um, I've done a few walkthroughs, but that's essentially how it goes. What I found interesting is watching the, the spreadsheet, the shared spreadsheet that we have, uh, I've witnessed Tom's style, which was, it's, it's partly to do with him, but also it's partly to do with his lifestyle. So when you snatch minutes on a train or a premier in hotel, um, what Tom does is he, uh, first bit is to assign which walkthroughs, but that's another conversation. But once, there's, once they've been selected, it's the question of, it's the regular structure that we have. Once we design the first walkthrough, then all the others will be the same. So in a sense, the writing process more or less is the same, which is introduction, get the main points down, and then you find the five steps. And that normally- I mean, that's, that, that's how it works. So it, it, it's, it's sort of, it, it start, it's quite, um, so you're saying mechan mechanical sounds wrong, but it's, I would say the right phrase is systematic. Yes. So what we do is we start off by saying, what are the themes? So we write all the titles down first. So we know the names of all the walkthroughs in the different categories, because then we can say, how many do we have? and who should we get to, to, to write them? And then, so we have a list and we do it on a spreadsheet, a Google spreadsheet. So Oliver and I can see it simultaneously. And then, so, I, I'm, so I'll sit down, okay, I'm gonna write this walkthrough and I go, right. So let me, um, I sort of get into the space of thinking about it. I think, so what would be the five steps? So I just write the head, head the title, like right? so that one, two, three, four, five. Once you've got the five steps thinking, does that work? And I think, yeah, okay, that basically, that is the, the steps, those other steps. And then you fill it, fill it, fill out the, you flesh them out. So you start saying, like, let me explain each step. And then I, then all of us, I, we have a color, <laughs> if you want to get really neat, you know, we have a color coding system, which says, I've done it. It's got, I've done it. It's, I've finished. And Oliver sees that and he goes, oh, great. One's finished. And then he goes away and goes, and starts thinking of ways to illustrate them. And what I find interesting is some of them are quite practical. So, you know, a teacher in a classroom doing a technique. So, for example, Adam Box's one on um, behavior management, you know, pictures a teacher in a classroom doing the, the things that he's suggesting. Whereas other ones to do with, say, curriculum or ab abstract concepts or, you know, awe and wonder or whatever, they're, they're more, it's kind of, you know, imaginative, they're more abstract and they're just sort of trying to prompt your imagination. So they don't look like a teacher in a classroom. So I love it. I love it. I love getting them back. You know, Oliver formats the whole thing and says, look, how about this? And I go, <laughs> nearly every time I go, oh my God, that's just fantastic. So it's a real, it's really great. So that's how it works. And then we sort of, a couple of times we sort of bat around the ideas a bit, but yeah, so like, it's a great, great responsive, great interactive uh, partnership there. And, and who decides the colour? We've had yellow, we've had blue. <laughs> who decides the colour this time? Oh, it's all the deep questions. <laughs> 
we'd had the colors in mind from the word go pretty much the main colors yeah. were the black but yeah we 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 had we decided it, part of it was influenced by the printers in and their availability and originally we had a more sort of subtle shades of like yellow through to orange but they were saying that is going to be a nightmare in the stock room <laughs> like we Literally, literally, that's what they said. We we need to be able to see them much more distinctly. So can they ask, could we go for something a bit more, like definitely each series being different, or else people end up being sent the wrong books by accident and stuff like that. So we thought, okay. So they, we went for the primary colours. Oliver, I mean, we've talked about how famous you and Tom are as 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 a duo and as a partnership, but there's an even more famous duo, and of course that is Mo and Melissa. <laughs> is this is there some inspiration behind those avatars? Is there a was there something you pictured when when you created these two? Well, yeah, I don't know whether you're old enough to remember. There was um, advertising um, for Nescafe, I believe, and there was a kind of an ongoing story. It was a, a little soap opera about na- a male neighbour borrowing coffee from a female neighbour, and it kind of developed into a into a romance. It was advertising story that went on for a number of years. And I thought just the idea of creating a narrative, a story, a bit of interest was great just to have a personality. So we gave the two teachers names and then we discussed whether they should continue or have another pairing. So we got, we got three pairs of teachers. Yeah, we've got um, Chloe and Chucker in book one. We've got Jenny and Joe in book two. <laughs> now we have Melissa and No. It's a way of sort of like trying to give a bit of personality. In fact, we just ordered six life-size cutouts of them. For we're going to have a, a launch event uh, in a couple few months' time, so we're going to have we're going to have some surprise guests, real life-size life-size models. <laughs> you know, we have to you have to enjoy yourself, don't you? So we 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 try to sort of play around with this idea, and it, it's just it's just fun. So we, it, it is quite useful rather than talking about the teacher or a teacher. So Oliver and I talk about. Melissa and Mo and what they're up to in the picture. That kind of thing. It helps us bring it alive a little bit. So uh, before we explore walkthroughs three, for practitioners listening, how would you recommend that walkthrough series is used? I mean, you've already said that you advertise it as a one kit process on your website. So how would you suggest practitioners that they should use these? And should those ideas be clustered or, or, or separated? Well, what we always say is this, that you, you need to solve the problems you've got. So it's not about sort of finding a use for the walkthroughs. It's the other way around. So we say, well, what are the, what are the problems you've got? What are the challenges you face? And then from that, you sort of diagnose the, the, the strategies which would help uh, deliver those issues, the problems, the sort of solutions to the problems. Like, is it around questioning and, you know, in-class questioning and checking for understanding? Is it to do with retrieval practice and quizzing? Is it to do with modelling and how you explain things? behavior management is it to do with you know, developing oracy so there's those as different areas of, of issue and then and then you look through your knowledge you know scan the totality of what's there and then start putting together a kind of a subset you know so the clustering is useful to say what's the kind of general territory we're in for questioning techniques link link a few of those and then say but but out of those which is the real priority you'd like to work on first so you zoom in and then say, right, well, maybe it's think, pair, share or checking for understanding. And then you get into the detail of that. So you sort of go, you zoom further and further in. But it starts with a needs analysis of, about what, what might be a good bet for you to try to get some traction and improvement based on what's, what you observe. So, so that's the way it goes. And then what we're finding schools really with use the cluster builder because it's sort of visual, visual, a really good sort of sketch pad for putting these ideas together. 
And already in the ones which where the schools have got volume one and two, you see that they're multicolored. They're, they're, they're taken some from both. And that will continue. So you might find that's where the cluster helps pull all the ideas together. But then it's really, this is the thing which we really stress when I'm, especially when visiting is, you then really have to be quite precise about what it is you're trying to focus on at any one time for a given teacher or a team. So they're not just sort of skitting around going, oh, that's lovely. Or oh, let's go over here. Let's have a look at this now. One week it's this, the next week it's that. It's like, let's really try to craft our practice around these ideas for, for some, a certain period of time until we feel we're really shifting our habits. So that, that is the challenge. It's like scan the, the big terrain of what's possible, but then like get really precise in the, in the kind of implementation. And that's hopefully what we're trying to, we're trying to provide other sort of tools to help people with as, as well as the walkthroughs themselves. From the feedback you get, Tom and Oliver, what, what's, is the one area that comes up more than others when schools are focusing in on those clusters? Yeah, I mean, I'd say questioning techniques comes up a lot. So things like say, you know, cold calling and think pair share, say it again better, comes up quite as a very popular strategy, no opt out. Uh, and, and also uh, modelling and scaffolding are very popular ones. Um, feedback as actions and ex using exemplars and redrafting, that's a whole other area. And, and also the... Um, the retrieval practice one, so like using knowledge organizer, ped, quizzing, quizzing. So as many kind of, but I suppose, yeah, if I was to say what's the number one pick, it would be cold calling. It's the one I'd say is the most commonly selected because it's the thing of creating inclusive classrooms and, and making all children feel they're part of the, of the room and part and, and thinking hard. It's sort of making sure they're involved in, whenever, you're, whenever you're asking questions and getting away from the hands up. A lot, of, a lot of schools have found that a, a, a useful common ground across a group of teachers, so that it's often one of the ones they've picked. But there are other quite popular ones, but that, I'd say that was quite a, often you hear that one. If you were you teaching 20 years ago, using the walkthrough series yourself, what would be the one area that you guys would have to dip into then? What would be your one problem area? When Tom comes back from the field and reports you need to check whether i'm accurate here tom i think this is what i heard tom say the one technique that you see needs to be worked on most is the one technique teachers think they do well and they do frequently enough and that's and it relates to the call calling but it shows you why call calling is important is check for understanding so if you think if you can if you frame teaching as fundamentally an act of communication, and all of a sudden, you know, it's more than that, but you think it, if you think of it just as communication, then the most important part is making sure that what you said was, was, was received and understood. And given that we know that insights here is not really available, and even when it's available through neuroscience, it doesn't tell us much. So, so we have to have a mechanism to see whether what you said has worked, whether, you know, and, and so checking for understanding seems to be almost something I can't imagine that you could ever do too much of it. I can't imagine you could ever do it too well. No, I think that's true. And, and, and I think that's common and that's a common one I, because it's, it's kind of hard to do. And the, the assumptions teachers make about, well, I've explained it. Hopefully they've heard they've understood it. 
I, I think for me personally, as I guess on me personally, I would say probably the thing I'd have found the most useful was the behavior management ones. So things like sim simply this, the, the, the insistence on routines, establishing expectations, positive framing, uh, and assertiveness. So sort of some of the advice, I feel like, and I, don't, I, don't, and I don't, I'm not just saying this, but I actually sometimes when I'm writing these ones, I'm sort of giving advice to my younger self saying, oh mate, you made a right fool of yourself there. Um, you know, there isn't a walkthrough that says don't chase kids down the corridor when they run away from you. But uh, I'm guilty of having done that. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's those, they, they, personally, those are my uh, challenges. So yeah, the, the, the behavior management ones, I actually think when you look at them all as a set, they're, they're quite helpful. And um, I, would have, I would have benefited from them without question. In walkthroughs three, you've got 23 guest authors. So how have you come up with ideas for that edition? And what's different about walkthroughs three to, to, to the other walkthroughs? Oliver, do you want to start on that one? There are some authors who are who had written some good stuff recently. I mean, there are so many authors, but I think of Sam Sims and Hex McRae and Harry Fletcher Wood, um, that their work is so important. And yet I, I imagine there are so many thousands of teachers who aren't on Twitter and who aren't eagerly following up the latest bit of research. So in a way, we provide a shop window so it's both intrinsically useful and you can understand it and, and you can use it. It also entices them into perhaps reading the original document. So some of them are like that. And some of them are just the nature of the, of the walkthroughs selected. So the ones on play, creative writing, who do we know, who has something to offer? Yeah, so I mean, and that's what we, we, we really found it was really positive. We love the fact that when you've got like in book two, I think there are 10 guest authors and they loved it. I mean, their response was brilliant. They, they really were so enthusiastic about being included that we just thought, well, people seem to quite like being in the book. So we thought, well, rather than being tentative about it, why don't we just ask people, do you want to write a walkthrough for us? And they were literally with two a person, they were just delighted. So we're thinking, well, what are the, what are the key people to capture as our last one? So for example, one of my favorite frameworks for teaching is making every lesson count with Sean Allison and Andy Tharby. And we just thought, well, can we just use their diet? You know, can we get, they just wrote their, they just nailed it in one like here's a sick here's a here's a two-page spread summarizing our framework fantastic pets mccray is fantastic book about motivated learning and motivation is a key underpinning idea how do we get students motivated he i've talked to him about this since you know he said it was quite a challenge he'd already thought he'd written the shortest book you could write about motivation and then he was asked to summarize it in in five steps and again he just he was the first one to do his. He, he finished his in about three days. It was like, boom, 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 boom. And you read it and you think, that is a brilliant summary of this, these ideas. And of course, it's a prompt to go and read it. And then you could keep, I could list them all. A couple of really specialist ones. So we thought we, it would, we, our book series would be incomplete if we didn't talk about the, the foundations of reading and writing in, in the early years and the key stage one. So we thought, well, who knows about that? Well, Emma Turner does. And Christopher Such, who are both primary specialists, so they wrote one each. And Sonia Thompson, she's done some brilliant work with Doug Lamov on his reading reconsidered work. And I knew in her school they were using Lamov's strategies extensively. So I asked Sonia to write a couple of how do you deliver reading strategies in the class. So again, she wrote, she's written two absolutely superb walkthroughs on reading. Um, one of them is called Accountable Independent Reading, another one is Close Reading. 
And they just, they're both Lamov originated, but it's all about her, her implementation of them. So you think this is all good stuff and they're people who do it. So there's a kind of, and then the other group of people like Efrat first, she's wrote fantastic blogs about memory and learning. And so we thought she's, she's written this excellent exposition of how memories are formed. And we thought, well, we need to include that because it's so clear and she was keen to do it. So, you know, so yes, the list kept getting longer. <laughs> so yeah, there's still, there's still left us still quite a few to do ourselves, but it, it's, it's definitely adds a lot of depth to the book. I'm just it looking was, at Emma's chapter now. You allowed her to break away from the five steps. Yeah, that was outrageous. Wow. But we, <laughs> for the reading and the writing, we felt they weren't really in five steps. So we thought rather than try to contort them into five steps, just break away from the structure. <laughs> Go roam free across those pages. But for the others, what I what I did, I found really useful because it was, um, as Tom says, even though Pets McCrea is famed for the way he'll he'll take notes for two years and condense so many words down into his book, which is so brilliantly done. We're asking for something even more concise. Now what I did, I, I'm, I made a facsimile, I mocked up, I use Adobe Illustrator, but I'm, I'm, I mocked up an equivalent on a PowerPoint slide with the six columns, introduction, five steps. I use the same typeface. So they really had to write to the space and they could see, and that, I think that helps enormously. Even though intellectually, you know, I'll do it on Word and it'll be changed. It kind of really helps when you can see you're, you're writing straight into the format. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I, I, I just think it's, um, that we've also got some people who've written about poaching. So for example, uh, Josh, Josh Goodridge, who, you know, in, who, 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 who writes a, a kind of a popular pr a platform. He worked right, you know, he, they have the um, Step Lab um, platform, Powerful Action Steps and platform and he's an absolute brilliant blogger about instructional coaching and he's written an excellent one about the kind of the the kind of motivational aspect of getting teachers on board with coaching uh, and dealing with those in the coaching process uh, and so that's it's really good to have him in in you know in the book and and sort of reinforcing the, the thinking about about that I mean I could we could go through it. it's funny we go through it one by one but each person brings a, a real sort of special expertise. So one of my favourite ones is Rich Kennett, who's written a great one about um, the museum analogy for curriculum design, and I, I think it's just, it's so it's so great. Basically, the idea that a curriculum is like a museum, in a sense that you're sort of telling a whole story, and there's a lot to, to tell. So when you're curating a museum, you select you design rooms. To, to focus on an area that's like topics and then within a room you 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 select the artifacts that go in the room so that you're not cluttering it with too many things you judiciously choose the key things to put in the in the exhi exhibition to tell the story and he says that's what you have to be doing when you're designing curriculum like less is more like you don't over clutter the museum with all the stuff you can possibly think of you because it's overwhelming you you make a selection and that's quite difficult sometimes. And then he's got a reason for the sorts of selections you make. It's just a really clear and lovely bit of clarity to gosh, the challenge of, of what do you put in and what do you leave out when you're designing a curriculum? And yeah, so that, that type of thing is like, it's lovely to be able to sort of include someone's fresh thinking like that. 
in in the work and for them to have just matched the the four five steps so yeah so we feel like there's a nice marriage of the kind of the grounded kind of craft from practicey stuff with some of these people sort of providing some of the the wraparound thinking so it all kind of adds up yeah and as we've said walkthroughs three is out on the 18th of april i mean i don't think people needed any more of a, a reason to go and purchase it but what we're doing here is trying to give people a, you know, a, a real insight into this book, give them a little taster so those pre-order sales fly through the roof. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, very grateful to be given an advanced copy, and I, I promise, Tom, it's under lock and key. I said I'm not going to go to the school photocopier and churn out hundreds of copies and sell them on the black market, but it's great because we can really look into some of these some of these walkthroughs. And I want to just uh, come to one about um, seating plans. Um, it's something that we talked to Michael Childs about um, when we looked at his book, The Sweet Spot. And you've talked about designing the arrangements. Now, drawing on both of your experience and, and especially yours from the SEND perspective, Ollie, is there a, is there a best proven evidence-informed classroom layout? And what strategies are, are best when we're thinking about where we place People premium students, SEND students. The first thing is you can see the board and you can see the teacher and you can hear the teacher. You know, I mean, my daughter had that trouble at her school. They simply couldn't see or hear the teacher. But, yeah. but I personally was really influenced by someone called Fred Jones. It's an American um, who spent a lot of his time um, teaching children in autistic schools, upon whom Doug Limov based a lot of his early work. So that's always interesting when you look at what influence him. And he has one principle. So he, in his book, um, Tools for Teaching, he has many layouts, but there's one principle which should be used throughout to judge the effectiveness. It's to have the shortest number of steps from the teacher to the furthest pupil. <laughs> it's funny because that's, we didn't include that in our book. <laughs> you asked me as a... In a, if a special needs, that's what that, that's what I would say. See the board, very simple. See the board, see and hear the teacher. Allow the teacher to move around the classroom. So, because in terms of the layouts, I mean, we 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 have one step. It just says design the design the layout, and we basically say that classroom arrangements are largely determined by the constraints of space and furniture. I mean, they really are. Like, let, let's be honest. I mean, that's often it's not much of a choice. It's just the room you've got, and. I say that as a science teacher, where sometimes it's just like the benches are the benches and that's that that's it. So there's not much to discuss, but there's also preferences. And I think one of the things about seating plans is there's a lot of kind of value stuff in there. It, I don't think there is conclusive evidence or could ever be that a certain arrangement was definitely better. I've, I've had once one to these courses. This is, this is in the sort of era of VAK. So we have to be it was literally in the time when people you'd have. a. I remember a guy coming to our school one time about 20, 2002 or three sort of telling us that you should put the most important information to the top right of the board as the children are facing it because of the left brain right brain thing they're more likely to cognitively engage with it there and that'll lead it's like we're all going this sounds like total bs but that's what he's saying and he's got a you know phd or something so we're thinking and at that same time someone told us look it's been a, it's a proven fact that l-shaped layouts are the best and we literally had L-shaped layouts in our school. Because it's like, but that, there's, I, I don't know if that study exists for real. So I, I sort of feel like, as Oliver said, can you see the board? Can you look them in the eyes? That's my, my go-to. Can I see you? 
and can I, and I can can I be focused on the learning to the maximum amount? And I've been to quite a few schools where behaviour management is a little bit ch challenging, and it's not helped by the fact that the children can eyeball each other the whole time, and they're not good at being avoiding the distraction. But I think that's more true at secondary. I find that primary school group tables are much more natural, and children are often very comfortable in them because they there's something about the way that they sit and talk around the tables and stuff. And I don't think that you know year four in rows is necessarily absolutely needed but in year, in year nine and you're teaching algebra I just think can you all be looking at my at me please because I'm explaining something really hard now and you, you need to be so I feel like there's a difference but these are I'm just imposing my preferences so in our walkthrough on it we're really talking about the seating plan meaning a tool for you to engage with the class rather than emphasizing the arrangement of tables and I saw a teacher doing this the other day and a new teacher ECT get his class charts um, seating plan on his iPad. And he was really using it intelligently to select students and check who he'd asked and getting to know the class. And you can see it was really helping him interact with the class because it was helping him scan. He, was, he kept looking down at it to see where have I been. Yeah, and he felt that helped him. And you think, well, you know, it's, it's a good, useful sort of device to make sure you've got names and you, you you're sort of clocking where you spread around the room and involving people so that that's what it's about you you focus on a walkthrough guide for ending lessons and something called the last 10 minutes so why is it so important and what are the best steps in your opinion to effectively end a lesson yeah i mean it's funny we i we, I, we put this in because i, I think that's one of the things we've, when, when we when we look at the cross all of the walkthroughs you know we've got sort of you know getting started and we've got a transition between lessons and we've got between activities and we've got a number of things so we're thinking you know it's actually a useful thing to just have a kind of a step-by-step -step guide and the main thing is to sort of plan that last 10 minutes so that it it keeps the learning focus right to the end and you end sort of in a calm way so that people can move on to the next lesson one of the key things is to is to scan the time and to make sure that you're you're keeping, you, you know, you don't end up with that horrible last minute panic of, you know, so it's, it's, I always find that really, really stressful as a teacher, sort of to suddenly be ending and it all go, blah, blah, and it's sort of like, oh my God, no, you, you haven't, whereas if you've gone nicely, count down to the end, crisp finish, you just feel like, great, that was like nice, and everyone's calm. So, we, but then also there's a, there's a, there's a behavior aspect to it. There's also a learning aspect to it. So one of the reasons you're, one of the things you're trying to do is, set up the journey between one lesson and the next and i think that's an important part there so we, we're not just saying that we only learn in the lesson time lessons are just parts of an overarching learning process so in the last 10 minutes you're sort of saying you need to sort of be setting up the the, 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 the what's going to come afterwards so that's why one of the steps in our walkthrough is you know you sort of you as you're wrapping up this lesson you're checking progress against your objectives have we how, how have we managed have we have we have we had achieved our objectives, checking the learning that's happened and, and reflecting on that with the students and then saying, right, so where are we in the bigger scheme and where are we going next? So, and it could include things like homework tasks. And then of course, then you've got the behavior things of pack up routines and leaving the class routines. And, and, and I think that teachers who, who get that right, sort of packing up with enough time and leaving. So that, that's, I mean, it's, it's pretty functional. It's one of those walkthroughs, which is like super every day and we're not trying to remotely tell people anything they don't already do, but it's just 
it's so interesting you go to a school and some teachers are just brilliant at this it's just always feels so orderly and other times it's kind of chaos so it's definitely worth thinking about you know can you just make it a nice steady routine and sometimes lessons end abruptly in learning terms as if that's it bump as if as if the like we're supposed to stop thinking about this now and and i just think it's really good to say so where are we going next where are we up to now and make sure the students see that it's part of a whole a whole just on the issue of, of curriculum and curriculum development what what are the key messages from walkthroughs three then for curriculum leaders there's quite a lot of things in there that, that we've put in so one of the one of them we talked already rich kennett's museum curation so that confidence around making that selection there's a couple of ideas around uh, big questions so can you frame a curriculum as rather than over fussing about the detail of the all the detailed knowledge everyone needs to have it's more like what's the big question you're trying to answer so that we throughout a topic you're saying but remember the main focus is what happened here what's the main reason for this and if we can answer that question generally we've got a good toe in and then the, the details underpinning that rather than can you list 20 facts about so-and-so it's the it's the question you're trying to answer and i think that's a good approach We've also got some stuff in there from Mary Myatt, where she's got some key messages about high challenge, low threat, making work, you know, beautiful works of high quality resources and her, her inputs are good. And there's, there's also a thing about interdisciplinary units. So we, we got this idea, slightly borrowed from Christine Council, but where interdisciplinary thinking is something which obviously needs to build on subject disciplines and can be usefully done and there's some a couple of really good examples we've come across so for example upper key stage two where you're doing a nice unit on say the amazon and, and they're learning the science the geography stuff to do with culture poetry religion all woven together in a study of the amazon and the people there and and it's a it's a classic interdisciplinary unit you know if you're going to understand the amazon you, you can't do it unless you know geography science and stuff sort of sociology kind of you know anthropology essentially but that's not what it's called at key stage two but it's sort of the study of people and culture it's it's so interesting and so when you when you teach it like an interdisciplinary unit it, it's really rich so it, we're trying to celebrate that but then it, it has to be done with some deliberate planning and we're, we're not saying it's the way you should teach the whole curriculum we're just saying here 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 and here across the school year or a, a, a key stage some interdisciplinary units help it all together and can you think of places where that would really add to your overall curriculum and you know we've given a couple of examples ollie do you think there's any scope for a, a walkthrough style book that's perhaps focused on supporting students with scnd special schools that that's i think because the, the, i don't know that but it doesn't feel like there's a, a practical helpful guide like the walkthroughs that could support with some of our more vulnerable students in the classrooms uh, yes, I think definitely so. I mean, from my time in special school, we're talking 40 years ago, behaviourism was the major um, educational philosophy, but it wasn't just an abstract philosophy. They were programmes for everything. They were very precise, very practical, very concise, explicit. So in some way, I've been, I've been involved in walkthroughs of a sort for decades and decades. So it's something that could be quite easily done in special schools. There is one of the walkthroughs in volume three is called Make Your Own. So 
break down in five steps what it is that would be successful in some way answering as Tom answered about how he writes them. So we talk about how to write them and how to, how to sketch them, you know, quite simply. If you can draw a square, an oblong and a circle, then you can draw a person and then you, you can envisage what you need. Um, yeah, so definitely. I, th I think one of the things that I found though, and I've, I've spoken to quite a lot of people using walkthroughs in special needs settings, in that special school, but mainly supporting SEND students in a mainstream school or FE college. And once you look at it, you can actually say, well, what are the, what are the walkthroughs that support students with special needs? And they're, they're, they're things like scaffolding, fluency building, um, and, and some more subtle ones like portfolio style assessment so that you, you're gathering evidence over time to see of tracking their progress. And that's in, in volume three. Uh, we could probably, and one of our developments is to sort of really help people to highlight that, that you know, what, what might be some specific ones. But there are some walkthroughs like SEN, challenging students with cognitive difficulties. That's in book two. So there are, there are some specific SEND ones, and you could probably pull them all together into one little neat bunch, which we might do to help people sort of isolate them. But one of the, obviously, like by definition, one of the things about children with special needs is that their needs are specific to them. So it's quite difficult to, to be too generic about it. Like you need to, you know, you, it depends on what the needs are, you know, and so obviously some are behavior, some of our behavior ones, I think are really good for students with, with social, emotional issues and, and so on. If it's to do with learning difficulties, there are a few which relate to that. So, so it's, I, it's, I, I think that whole phrase, which gets used, which is, you know, quality first teaching, which sometimes people hate that phrase um, because it gets bandied without being explained, but it means the, the first teaching of material, like the, the first time you teach something to children with special needs, you do it with, with really thoroughly for them, not just hope they pick up the scraps from a lesson which is aimed at everybody else. So if you're teaching to those children, so for them to understand things at the beginning, it's less of an emphasis on intervention later. And I think, so therefore, it's really about applying all those other techniques like explaining and modeling and questioning inclusively from the beginning. <clears throat> and that's important to stress that, I think. I was particularly drawn to the chapter on advanced organizers. And, and you wrote that based upon the work of Robert Marzano et al. Is this an indication now of the increasing level of expectation of students rising because it, it, it sounds to me a bit like pre-reading, and that wasn't something I started till university. So how do we embed this into practice and culture? That was, that was a good sort of, sort of suggestion from Oliver. Uh, and and, and the, the fact that you know, advanced organisers, when, when you look at what Mozano was saying, they're not sort of just, people sometimes just think, they're not, that, oh, do you mean a knowledge organiser? And you go, well, not necessarily. It's sort of any, anything which is about organizing the ideas in advance of the teaching. Uh, and, and so that was, I, I quite enjoyed sort of doing some research around that actually, because it's, it's sort of, and, and, I, and I, I have done this before. So I've taught only at secondary to be, to be really explicit about it, but I've done this with year seven and above, not, so not just at, at sixth form, but very definitely in the sixth form and at GCSE is do pre-reading and note making. So for me, uh, as a teacher of exam subjects, if you can train your students to read and make notes and bring them to the lesson, 
it's just immensely powerful rather than only take notes from you and spend a lot of your lessons giving notes you you spend your time talking about the notes they've made and of course to begin with they need help to do it well but you can teach them to do it well and when they can it's amazing so i i have direct experience of this and i found it incredibly useful but you do have to have a culture which expects it and reinforces it so it's not just a thing you hope for you have to start to you have to rely on it so it there's a bit of a kind of chicken and egg thing there so if, if you don't think the students will ever do it then you don't do it and then they don't learn how to do it so it's like a vicious circle but if you think this would be cool let me try it and you work on it you can create a culture where it's happening and then you get better at it and it becomes normal so you do have to sort of have a bit of commitment to it before it gets off the ground or else it just falls flat because no one did it <laughs> so and I've come across that cycle with teachers quite often that they just don't believe it because uh, they just can't imagine everyone in their class doing the pre-reading. So it does come with some expectations and normalising it and, and, and building it into the routines. But it's, it's, a, it's a great set of ideas that, from Mazzano there. We've finally seen a move away from rigorous and ineffective marking policies with the priority being focused uh, on, on feedback. You've developed one of the walkthroughs on assessment portfolios. Why have you included this and how are assessment portfolios used? And is there any evidence to back their use? I think the evidence is it's a bit, I, I think, I, I, so I, I think this is an interesting question. They are part of our system already. So we, 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 this isn't something we're saying we, we're recommending and saying, um, we're saying we're just saying if you're going to do this do it well so for example if you do art gcse you are assessed six you know by quite a high proportion is there's a portfolio based assessment with a bit of an exam and if you do a lot of a lot of fb courses btex and so on they're portfolio based and of course in previous iterations of gcses and so on there have been things like portfolios of writing and so on so portfolio based assessment is is it is in the, the system and, and lower down. So one of my favorite, the reason I put it in is because one of the best things I've ever seen in assessment was in um, a school in Oman, actually, British School of Muscat. <laughs> so that's literally where I saw this, where they did this fantastic portfolio tracking with uh, in the foundation stage. So you've got children who are four or five and the teacher selects three students a week and photographs their work um, gets the sample of their writing and they make a little mini portfolio of their work that week and then the parents see it and it if rather than saying writing loads of notes about them you just show the work and then write a shorter bit about them and then look three students a week takes you about eight weeks to see them all and then you do it again and then the second wave, you see the progress from the one before, and then it's just absolutely superb. So, and I think they got three loops in a year. So, across the year, you'd have three of these lovely focus weeks for it per child, and it's amazing. At the end, so you got three of these beautiful records of their work, and what an amazing way of assessing them and their progress. It was just really, really good. So, there's that type of idea. You think, well, what's the evidence of it? I don't, I, I can't reference a, a study, but I've seen it done. So. Uh, you kind of feel like you're kind of just celebrating uh, something which seemed to be effective and was well thought of in its context. 
so I feel like that's what it's that's about. Um, it's not saying instead of doing exams in maths and science, you should do portfolio assessment. It's saying do it where it's appropriate for the context. I think you can tell that all of us here at More Than The Job podcast are huge fans of the walkthrough series. We've all used them. Obviously, we, we can all see the impact and all. But funnily enough, what you mentioned earlier about check for understanding, that's the one area myself that I've used most in the walkthrough series. Um, but what would you say to those who haven't come across the walkthroughs before? What would you say, how would it be of benefit to them to use the series? Ollie, if I come to you first. I, we've used the word curate before. I think they capture the wisdom that teachers have developed for themselves for the most part anyway, over, for decades and decades and decades. Um, what struck me was that we don't have a system of collecting what we've used. So an experience that comes to mind, when I used to do loads of dual coding, I often used to do a particular technique and I'd have a teacher say, oh, I used to do that, but I've forgotten all about it. So not only we don't even capture what we do well over the decades, let alone do we capture what our colleagues do in, in our school and, and in other schools. And it seems like such a shame because teachers work, they're so talented, they're so committed, they work so hard and it just disappears. There's no national archive collection where you are central, where you can just see what have we done that we found that have, that have worked. And which goes back to the first question, you can't do it all, but it's all available in all the different spheres that you engage with children with. There's something that you can use. And of course, the other aspect, it should be for honoring a busy teacher, and you know, a modern professional, it should be attractive, clear, concise, and enjoyable to read. And you can understand it and you can use it straight away. And the third point, which echoes what Jim Knight says in the instructional coaching, they're both precise, you can use them straight away, they're practical. And he uses this other word, provisional. What that means is, and we have something on the bottom of every spread of walkthrough, it says it's the adapt. So Tom created a five-stage adapt process, which means that the walkthroughs are context-free. And, so, and often they'll work as is. But really, given how different classrooms are and children are and subjects are, then you would expect to be able to have to tweak it, adjust it somewhat, given your circumstances. And teachers are always in a circumstance. You can't ever live in a world context-free. You are always thrown in a context. So that entails some changing, um, which is completely different to the programme, where you just follow the programme, even though you know well, that's not quite right. So here you're continually encouraged to make it your own, tweak it, adapt it. Why, what would I say to someone who hasn't used them before? It's to say, it's, it's a sort of, for me, the, a, a really helpful reference for helping you think through the different techniques you already use in the classroom, including, and some more that you may, may not be using. So you can evaluate whether, you, whether you're doing them well and how you might prioritize your professional development over the next sort of period of time in a way which everyone else can also do. So you're developing a common language with your colleagues and the difference it's made to me going into schools is just huge. So before I had the walkthroughs, I was sort of saying, oh, well, you know this technique, well, this is what it is. And I have to sort of act it out the whole time. And then say, every time we're talking about is someone doing it well or not, you're saying, well, what would it look like? And having to redefine it all the time. But now I just say, well, should we just, 
Should we just, I even know I wrote the book. I sort of, I open the books and I say, should we just have a look what it says? It says, they're suggesting the first step might be this. And then after that, do you think that, and then we've got an agenda ready made, like a four, a four or five, a five step sort of an agenda for a conversation. Is that something you find hard? What about that? That's quite difficult, isn't it? How do you sort that out? And what would that look like for you? And it's just there reminding us to have that conversation. It structures it. And you're doing the same with everyone else who's looking at the same idea. So the common language comes through. And that's the most, probably the most common feedback we get from people is in their schools. It's really helped them have conversations about teaching in a, in a way which is common and therefore more cut to the chase more of doing it better rather than constantly working hard to define things the whole time and that's been a real a real sort of shift for me and, and so that's why I'd recommend them to people it's just really helpful uh, as well as being sort of visually engaging and um, capturing like Holly said all, all, all the great ideas that lots of different people have had I think we've done a reasonably good job of collecting them together so that you don't have to look too far outside of it to to know sort of quite a few ideas yeah and it's it's quite humble as well of you guys to, to to branch out isn't it and allow other people with their ideas to to obviously put them into your walkthroughs books and and very clever as well that you you know you you, you kind of take the competition under your wing as well don't you you know so so you've got them under your umbrella of walkthroughs anyone who might be writing rival books to yours no need because it's all included in the walkthrough series it's all encompassing so Tactical genius and tactical mouse <laughs> from uh, from Sherrington and Caviglioli. Well, we're going to move on to our so-called fun questions. We've changed them, actually, Tom, because you, you've already done a set of our, our fun questions in your full episode that you did a few months ago. So we've changed these ones. So what we'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question um, and then, Oliver, Oliver, if you answer first, and then, Tom, if you answer the same question after Oliver's answered his question, have a bit of unofficial competition. See if you can outdo each other with uh, some of the <laughs> answers here. So the first fun question to you, Oliver, if you could travel to anywhere in the world that you haven't yet been to, and I know you're a well-traveled person because I remember speaking to you at Research Ed Surrey, where would you go to and why? Not the right time to say it, but I did sports. And one thing I was intrigued by was the East German society. I'd, I'd really like to... My parents were, were they weren't just uh, Marxists, they were self-avowed Stalinists, which is really the wrong thing to say nowadays. But um, I would like to have experienced just, uh, you know, being a citizen in a communist country, really what it was like. I mean, it's really interesting, you know, there was a whole host of books and films about East Germany, because you know that it was never gonna come about again. You know, it's almost gone forever. So that's my strange thing that I'd like to, to do it's a it's a great answer I, I was it's a good time actually to teach it isn't it i know it's i know it might seem like opportunism for an, a, a really bad thing that's happening in the world but you know because it's probably driving as well some of vladimir putin's you know ideas is this, this the old russian empire and how it used to be and 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 to look at communism and and how it worked and stuff so i, I think i think that's a really fascinating answer tom same question to you I think the, the country, I, yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to go. Well, I'm, I've actually, the next holiday I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to Jamaica. And I've actually booked to go because it's, I've always wanted to go to the Caribbean and I've never been. And uh, my uncle used to live there. Um, his partner is uh, her family from Jamaica. Um, 
So we've, I've heard a lot about it, but I've always wanted to go. So I'm actually quite excited because I'm actually going. <laughs> so I'm really, really it, thrilled about it. Is it a holiday holiday or a, a working holiday? No, it's, a proper, it's a proper holiday. It's just literally a down tools holiday. So it's it's really, yeah. So it's sort of, it's one of those things where in, in the depths of lockdown thinking, oh God, we've got to book something and, and just hope that we were allowed to travel. And it looks like we're, still, we're going to be able to. So yeah, that, that to me is a proper exciting. I'm really, really excited about that. Um, well, well, Tom, Ian Fleming wrote a quite a lot of his James Bond novels from Jamaica at his house, Goldeneye. Is, is Twitter going to see a, a Tom Sherrington slash James Bond walk out of the sea at, at any point? <laughs> I don't, I don't. I don't think the world is ready for that. I think. I think that might cause too much of a stir. <laughs> and I, I think my wife, my, my wife might have a few things to say about that. <laughs> you could call the fourth book, which we all know is going to come out anyway, a walk through Jamaica. Well, yeah, that'd be great. I mean, it, it, it's it's sort of. My wife went on a holiday with a friend of hers a couple of years ago to Costa Rica when when um, walkthroughs when the Learning Rainforest was made and she took a copy of the book. So I've got this brilliant photograph of my of the Learning Rainforest book in the in the rainforest in Costa Rica. So it's kind of it's the closest since then that I'd have got myself to taking. Uh, I, I don't know if I'll take one of her books on holiday. That might be one of the saddest things anyone's ever done, but uh, maybe I will just so that I can take them on holiday. Give them a bit of a, bit of a, a bit of a bar. Give sort of um, Chloe and Chucker a bit of a time in the sun, you know. And we we all, we always like to 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 boast about the fact that we've got listeners in North America and stuff. I think that's my my sister lives there, so it's probably just her. But you know, we, we can look at them. Dan. Have we got any listeners in Jamaica? Do you know? While you ask the next question, I'll have a look. Right. Okay. <laughs> have, have a look. So moving on to politics, we, we like to delve into a little bit of politics. We've interviewed a couple of politicians recently, actually, about education and, and, and uh, other things. So, Oliver, this question for you first. Who is your favourite Secretary of State for Education and why? You haven't done your homework, have you? <laughs> well, the name that comes to mind, although I think he was a disappointment, was David Blunkett. I find his, his approaches in all aspects of government was um, really sound. I was going to say David Blunkett as well. He was my favourite for sure, for certain. As it, he, when I was when I was teaching at Holland Park School in the in the nineties, just after the ninety seven election, Tony Blair came to visit the school, and he came with David Blunkett. And there was this terrible sort of cock up of, of of planning, which was that they they were delayed and they came during break time, and when 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 they arrived. Uh, they were mobbed like they were rock stars. It was absolutely amazing. The children were cheering and Tony Blair walked into the school and they were mobbed like we were having, it was like a bit of a security thing because they were supposed to come during lesson, during lesson time. So we had it all set up for that, but we hadn't prepared for them arriving in the middle of the play, playground. And David Blunkey was there. <laughs> he was going, oh my God, is it always this noise? And he was really sort of like, because obviously, you know, he, he had to be guided through, but it was, it was quite, he was great. I mean, so it wasn't, it, I've met him that time and it was, he was just so passionate. So I, I really had a lot of respect for him. Back to the um, listenership. Um, no one in Jamaica, Tom, just listen to one episode when you're in Jamaica, will you, just to hit that one. But we have had Puerto Rico, St. Lucia and Antigua. Fantastic. That's great. So uh, my question is for you only, Ollie, because because Tom, Tom, you answered a very a version of this question the first time you were on. 
So we changed up a little bit. So, Tom, you were stranded on a desert island, but Ollie, you're going to be stranded in Tom's learning rainforest. And um, what two items would you take with you to aid your survival that cannot be luxury items? They can't be used to aid survival, so your water and food will take care of. What two luxury items would you take with you? My Kindle version of the walkthroughs. Unnecessary. <laughs> Yeah, oh, oh, oh. Um, I think I'd have a big art book of Fernand Léger, one of my favourite French artists, because in the rainforest, to be engaged in something other than just survival would be a luxury in itself. That to me almost sounds like definition of luxury. And an artichoke, so I could grow it if it, if it wasn't there. I'd survive <laughs> Fernand Léger and artichokes. That's a great answer. Yeah, I don't think if we'd have all been asked to predict in advance, <laughs> you, you could be guessing for, for weeks and weeks, couldn't you? Yeah, you, that's a that's a, a top answer. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that really is. Um, talking now about fame and fortune, Tom, you've already said you've met Tony Blair and, and David Blunkett, but my question to the both of you is, who is the most famous person that you have ever met? And what did you say to them? I, I think the, I think the most famous person that I've ever met was um, the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, at, at a Duke of Edinburgh awards event, where you're sort of standing in a room, if that counts, and he comes around talking to all the groups, and he chatted to to us, and, I, and I, I've, I've met him twice for that reason, and um, <laughs> the first time it was one of these weird things. He said. He said, how many, how many people have you got going through the gold Duke of Edinburgh Awards? And I said, and I just said, um, 45, which we thought was great. And, I, and he said, and I, have you got any plans for any more? And, and I said, well, well, no, that's the I think that's the maximum capacity we've got at the moment. And he said, why? What's the matter with you? <laughs> so, and he suddenly said it out loud in the room. It's like that was what people would have heard from outside of our little bubble. Why? What's the matter with you? And I was thinking, well, nothing's the matter with it. So it was all really awkward, and then he moved on to the next people. <laughs> that was my like really awkward conversation with Prince Philip. It was like, yeah, <laughs> left a lasting impression. Um, Ron Clark, the multiple world record holder from Australia. I uh, I had a chat with him at the Athletes Village in Edinburgh, where he told me. Um, and it affected me very strongly that after his multiple world records, if he was probably the most famous athlete in the mid to late 60s, he said, after you get the world record, you just get so feeling of emptiness. And you think, oh, is that it? Um, so, you know, it's about the journey, not getting there, because getting there is, like, well, so what? Nothing else to do. So that, that affected me quite a lot. Well, I think that leads perfectly into the next question because you two have reached that gold standard as well with the, the trilogy of the walkthroughs. And we don't want any feeling of emptiness now that you've, you've reached the top there. What's, what's next for you two? How do you see the next 12, 24, 36 months panning out? We have plans. We have multiple plans. <laughs> Before Tom tells you more details, the thing to remember is that we've been talking about the walkthroughs as the books. But there's another larger side, which is the online resources. 
which is what occupies us most of the time, um, where, as Tom started to say, it's all about the implementation. Um, so I was, I don't, had, I didn't have a chance with your questions to say that what makes the walkthrough stand out isn't necessarily just that they're concise and, and they're visual, it's that they're modules. They're not a program. They're not a program. And so therefore those questions about, would you have book one before book two? They're, they're a set of tools, they're all available. As Tom said, they're available to you in sorting out how do you want to address the circumstances that you find yourself in? Um, so what you do is you select them based on that thinking and then you configure them into particular arrangements, either within a cluster and then clusters themselves become, in a sense, a policy. And what we envisage is that things change. So policy will change, legislation will change, uh, research will change. But that doesn't make the walkthroughs out of date. You simply reconfigure them, which is the whole point. You know, Lego never goes out of date. You just, you just stop doing whatever you're doing and you, 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 you reconfigure them into something else. So that means it's really worth working on the implementation because it's something that will, that will last and it puts the schools in the driving seat of designing, designing the educational environment they want. They've got the tools for it. Yes, that, that's really our focus. I mean, we, we, we sort of always had in mind that we'd finish the volume three book by, by April, which we have. And then, so we're, we're now working on our, our walkthroughs platform and the, the membership pro, pro, process for that. We've got 2000 schools already signed up, but we're gonna, we're gonna be getting that into a, a more of a kind of regular thing over the next year. And then the idea is that we, we, we're working with schools around divide, designing their programs so we've got various ways of doing that. We've got um, some more tools to, to, to put on our website. We've got some programs with clusters of schools around the UK. So we've got quite big programs with schools in, in Sheffield, in the southwest of England, in, in Reading, in Surrey, in, um, in Harringay, where I am, and, and more. And so that, that's quite interesting. And also uh, developing some training. So one of the very exciting things is that we've, We've, rec we've recruited 25 people who are going to be our first cohort of walkthroughs trainers. So we, they're, they're coming to us. We're, we're starting the training this month um, and they'll do some days training with us around how to run CPD in schools, how to support school leaders if they're trying to work out how to use the toolkit. And they'll be, they're, they come from across the UK. So we'll, they'll be, that's really interesting. So we're, really, we're trying to just make, increase the capacity we've got to help people uh, devise really good CPD systems and coaching systems in their schools without it being a rigid program and that's well, that's our kind of USP if you like that we, we we feel like we want schools to design their own programs using the toolkit rather than it being here's how you do it and everything being sort of tied down by the platform and other systems are different you can other by other get into other systems where it's all kind of laid out for you and ours is the opposite to that so it's sort of, we're, and we're excited by that. So I think that will take us, that, that will keep us busy. And there are some, personally, I'm quite excited about a couple of over, over, overseas trips. There's going to do a series of visits to schools in, to, to, in Australia in the autumn and next year 
in the, in the US. So they're getting some, because there's an interest there, but we, we saw sort of early days for that. So that's just to try to see, you know, if there are ways of getting our, our walkthroughs known in Australia, in the US. So I'm quite excited about that. But mainly it's the platform. We, we've, we're really thrilled by people's interest so far. So yeah, so we, we're sort of growing a bit of capacity around that, working with our partners at John Cat, who are just awesome. They're, they're so great to work with. And they're part of our sort of team that do, does this with us. So Walkthroughs has grown from a book to this, this sort of system. And we're, we're quite excited by what it could do. We just have to, uh, you know, that, that, that'll keep us busy, certainly for a year or two. <laughs> Research Ed Warrington will be the first research ed after the book at walkthroughs three has been published so that is the time to to have them flying off the shelves i hope john cat have got extra stock available they they ha i hope they have too yeah they better kill <laughs> well both of you it, it's been an absolute pleasure i know we've interviewed you before you didn't we we didn't just to finish off because i said that at the start batman and robin mario luigi wallace and gromit holmes and watson anton deck which one best describes you you know have you did you work out I think um, <laughs> Wallace and Gromit, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I like, a, a lot of us done all these images. I, I'd quite like us to be um, Tintin and Captain Haddock. <laughs> yeah, very good, yeah. Yeah, Brilliant. That, that, yeah. Well, well, Tintin and Captain Haddock, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on More Than A Job podcast. And, and Oliver, we look forward to seeing you at Research Head Birmingham. Tom, no doubt we'll catch up in the near future. 18th of April is Walkthroughs 3. Uh, we wish you all the luck with that. Tom Sherrington and Oliver Caviglioli, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Peace and clear now, baby. Yeah, yeah, because it begins like... <laughs>